Well, if you give a party, don't lock the door. Turn out all the lights. Cause if you don't let my boys inside, it's going to be a fight. Well, we started out this morning. We're going to rack some heads. Some names know that to call the heat. And now we're laying dead. Well, if you give a party, don't lock the door. Turn out all the lights. Cause if you don't let my boys inside, it's going to be a fight. Greetings, salutations, and welcome once again to Crashing the Party. This is part two of a two-part interview with Don Folletti, a record collector extraordinaire and co-founder of Relic Records and the Relic Rack Record Store. And for the second hour, it'll be Miriam and I doing our usual, you know, stuff. So sit back and listen to Don because he's got some amazing stories. If I think of the years of college, I, I was able to listen to 850 WRAP in Norfolk, in uh, Norfolk, Portsmouth, and that was an excellent rhythm and blues station. Jack Holmes was a disc jockey that went back into the 40s and uh, actually late 40s. And then at night, I could get WLAC in Nashville. Wow. So wow. That, that was, was a great station. Oh, sure. That was John R., you know, yep. and Bill Hoss Allen, and uh, G. Nobles was on then, and then there was the Buckley's Record Shop. So actually and, and Rand, Randy's record shop right, this right right and I had yeah. I had been able to get that in actually in West Orange so in 1952 and 53 I had written to Randy's and I had catalogs from them then which in a low period of my life I gave away uh, <laughs> and you know they would have like five keys 45, uh, 89 cents, 78, 98 cents, and then it would list all the Aladdins. Oh, my God. <laughs> all the Orioles. Uh, but all the, uh, but that, was, that was then. Um, so, the Heartbreakers on RCA, right, for 89 cents? Oh, sure. <laughs> and anything like that at that time. I mean, remember that. These records were ephemeral. I mean, rhythm and blues in particular. I mean, it sure. was here today and gone tomorrow. You know, like these companies that bought surplus records from jukebox operators, record stores, would advertise in the back of cash box, and they would put in no more than 10% blues. <laughs> because uh, for resale, that was the least popular. I mean, I guess they could get rid of the, the, uh, the popular, the pop stuff and the country easier than that. Um, you know, at the time in the city, my parents were very indulgent, and they brought us, my sister and I, to the city and a couple times a year. And we would see Eddie Fisher at the Paramount, for example. Um, and uh, at the time of I'm Walking Behind You. And then we would go on Broadway, and there would be these stores that would have big signs, records, 39 cents, three for a dollar. So a lot of it was R&B, and I knew the labels. I remember buying a copy of Willie Maybon. I don't know because I had heard that, and it has a big 39 cents on the label still. <laughs> now, I got rid of my 78 years ago anyway, too. But um, So 
at this time, that was um, in, in now in the 60s. And I remember, uh, here's a, a good time to play a record. The, the, the first time I heard this on WRAP in Norfolk, it was in the afternoon. And I said, wow, this is amazing. And I thought the name of it was Lorraine. And I thought it was Lorraine by the Preludes. Well, it was instead, uh, this is a story about a boy and a girl. And it was, of course, absolutely fa fabulous record by, I guess he was from Emporia, Virginia. Absolutely fabulous guy, wonderful lead singer, Eugene Pitt and the Jive Five, My True Story. The best. In 1958, I went to Mr. McRoberts, my high school history teacher, and he was running something called the West Orange Teenage Canteen, which met on Saturday nights at the Fairmount School in West Orange, and it would attract, oh, maybe after a football game, at the most 200 people. So yeah. I said, you know, Mr. McRoberts, I think I could get some local record people in for this uh, and it won't cost much 
they were getting these terrible little bands, or I think maybe they were playing some records. Um, so what I did is I started to call up the local record companies, and the big coup was a group called The Plurals from Newark and East Orange oh. who had a local hit, uh, courtesy of Danny Stiles, the Catman on WNJR, called Miss Annie. And they were Italian-American, and the lead singer, Pat Mazzillo, of course, charmed all the teenage girls. So I would go out there with my suit and tie and a microphone. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? (laughs) Uh, And I would say, here are the Wanger recording stars, uh, you've heard them on Danny Styles' Catman show with their big hit, Miss Annie. Here are the plurals. Here come Annie walking down the street. Looking nice and she looking real sweet. Oh, Miss Annie, won't you please be mine? Come on, Annie, don't waste no time. Hey now, Miss Annie. Hey now, Miss Annie. Hey now, Miss Annie. Please be mine. Here come Annie walking down the street. Looking nice and she looking real sweet. Oh, Miss Annie, won't you please be mine? Come on, Annie, love you all the time. Hey now, Miss Annie. Hey now, Miss Annie. Hey now, Miss Annie. Please be mine. Wow. Wow. Grice um, in the summer of 1962. He was working part-time at a distributorship called Apex Martin, which was the Motown distributor for New Jersey. 
on Washington Street in Newark. He had graduated from college then. I think he was teaching history at Ridgefield Park High School, and he was working part-time, and he was setting up the oldies at Sam Goody. Now, Eddie was from the Bronx. Eddie had a hustler mentality, and he, unlike myself, I was more interested in the straight being a kind of record manufacturer. Eddie was more of a collector. He was selling records out of the trunk of his car to different guys he knew at the time. And then he was bringing them into Slim for credit. Uh, We didn't know each other then. And somehow I got to know him um, in the fall of 1962. I was still in college, but he opened the record store here on Main Street in Hackensack. It was a kind of hole in the wall, and um, Eddie opened that in October 62, and I believe I went there a couple times. And Eddie wasn't the most friendly guy in the world, but I sort of had a rapport with him. He wanted to replace Slim as the doo-wop king of the local area area. So at that point, he had persuaded his partner um, and his boss, Joe Martin, to put some money and to start, uh, I guess it was called Relic Record Productions at the time, or Relic Rack Inc. uh, for the store. And he uh, took a favorite record, it was the first record on the Relic label. It's called was called I Love You by the Foremost. And it was originally released on a local label from Harrison across the bridge in Newark uh, called Milo. And Eddie went to Joe Fliss, who had a recording studio. He had the Milo and the Cool label. It was a lot of rockabilly, a lot of... Uh, self-financed records that were out on Cool and Milo, and he bought the master, I think, maybe for $150, and he pressed it on color plastic at K Records, and they had pressed Old Town and Fury and J&S, and then our friend Stan Krauss, who we met at that time, his father owned K. So, when you see some of these odd multicolor one-offs on even these uh, Phil Spector records uh, over the years, they were pressed by Stan um, in, after the shift was over. Oh. <laughs> so a, it was very convenient. Um, Eddie would go in and pick up the records and bring them back and sell them in the store. And he started a small wholesale company at that time. And I, he had wanted certain masters that he liked. So I was able, again, by calling BMI or knowing addresses, knowing who owned these labels, to one of the label records he really wanted was called My Life's Desire by The Verdicts on East Coast. So I went over to this guy's apartment in, uh, near Columbia University 
and I might have given him $25 for the master, and then I would sell it to Eddie for 150 Oh, boy. And I would do the contracts Does myself. Does he know this today? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. But it was a good deal for him. Yeah. You know, because he didn't have to do the legwork on it, and um, I was, I didn't have really legal background, but I was able to figure out how to do these things and how to do them legally and all of that. And it was amazing. People were willing, uh, even across the country, to sign this thing. And again, it was very ephemeral. I mean, if a record came out in 1959 and it sold zero copies, why would somebody care in 1963 uh, about it, and at, you know, we guaranteed them a royalty. So you I had a template, a, a master uh, purchase ha- template. Yeah, exactly. We had contracts. Yeah. The record store moved in 1963 to 136 Main Street, and Eddie and I eventually sold it to George Lavatelli in 1978, who ran it. Um, basically until this year when he uh, died in February. Um, Although it was moved out of the building uh, back in, I guess, 2002 uh, when the building was sold. Um, Eddie and I started the LP label um, in again, I have the invoices. Eddie had the genius actually to put an acapella LP out, and that's another story because Slim was encouraging with some of his singles. Um, a lot of the uh, kids who would come in uh, liked to sing. And, you know, they were doing the whole street corner thing, and they were harmonizing on the same songs. <laughs> Gloria, Stormy Weather, uh, Since I Don't Have You, um, and some of the street songs like Guardian Angel, you know, which, which was out by a group called The Selections, originally from the Bronx, I guess. Um, so a cappella... Um, was big, and the acapella 45s were outselling the reissues of the standard 45s. Really? So I guess it was 1964, Eddie decided to, and he, we put out a, a, our first album on Relic 101 called The Best of Acapella. I mean, you know that Miriam sure. too, with the red cover, yeah. and yeah. that was probably the only acapella I ever really liked because it had the nutmegs, which were original masters uh, that were done at the time the nutmegs were singing up in New Haven. I guess probably in for Marty Kugel, nineteen fifty-five, fifty-six, and then we had a group called the Velvet Angels. Ah, the Velvet <laughs> Angels. Let's hear your story. Yeah, the Velvet Angels. Well, that was a story. We had a very good friend, Angelo Pompeo, from Jersey City, and he had met the Diablos. I guess it was most of the Diablos who had come in. What was it? I forget what the exact story was, but they were staying at a hotel, I think, in Jersey City. Came in to shop at the shop. Yeah, and they had um, improvised and done some sides a cappella. 
Um, and we picked those up, and I'm in Love by the Velvet Angels actually started to break in Philadelphia. I'm in love, yes I am. a single that Eddie and I had a medieval label and um, we, uh, Jerry Blavitt who was the big DJ then in 1965 had picked it up and then for some reason uh, Jarrett Weinstein and Jerry Green who <laughs> wanted a hundred percent of everything decided to kill it so uh, that was the end of that as a regional hit well how did they do that they just took it off the air Oh, they were able to do that at the time. They did did you get some flack from from some people in Detroit? Over the years, we were never able to do any kind of deal with Fortune mm. because she remembered that uh, we had put those out. She meaning Devora Brown. Devora Brown, right? And um, it, it it was it, when I spoke to her several times. Um, she would make all these kinds of charges and it would remind me with some of the unhappy dealings I had with members of vocal groups over the years where we really tried to pay them accurately, but as with the harp tones, they thought we must have been selling thousands of thousands of these uh, records. Yeah. I have one. 
So uh, it was one of these things that was kind of impossible to reconcile. Um, but then with the renewal of interest a few years, let's see. So what happened now from 66, 67, we put out, I think, eight more. I think it was a total of eight or nine a cappella albums. We had the retail store, but increasingly we were selling R&B and soul singles and LPs. I mean, we had a very diversified clientele. Uh, we still had the oldies, um, and a lot of the customers our age were getting drafted at that point. And so between 68 and when Gossard started again, I guess it was 70, 71, it was kind of a real bleak period. At one time, uh, Eddie put out like all the Relic singles for 10 cents each on the counters. Um, And there was really no thought in doing anything more. But in 1971, our friend Leo Rogers, who was a part owner of Bruce Records originally, and he had, with his partner, done short shorts uh, by the Royal Teens and had a myriad of small labels, tip-top with the performers and lo-fi and uh, spring. Um, He had died, and Eddie went to his sister and for, I guess I can mention it now, $500, bought the rights to all his, the harp tones and everything on the labels. And again, it, it it only had value if you could reissue it in some form. So I guess it was 71 or 72 that we put our first LP out, 5001, in that series, and that was the harp tones. Uh, and that did relatively well. Uh, I think the second one was the Nutmegs Acapella, and then the Velvet Angels was one of the early ones. Um, so... Over the years, I guess in the 70s, um, we had a small LP business. So when we started the label, um, Eddie had the concept of doing a series called The Golden Groups. And you had the endeavor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that was, you know, uh, I I don't want to sound too modest because I like credit as much as the next person, (laughs) but I really didn't care if my name was on anything. But Eddie is (laughs) another, uh, he he wanted the credit, so he put on the back of all the albums uh, an Eddie Grice reproduction and a Don Folletti endeavor, something like that. Yeah, was it? Yeah, or a concept. Right. So uh, the first Golden Group and the uh, series of albums was, of course, our Onyx label. And Onyx was a classic New York label. Can I come Darling, let me come over tonight. 
1963, Eddie persuaded Joe Martin, his distributor, then partner, to spend $2,500, and we acquired most of the masters and rights of the Onyx label from Jerry Winston, uh, formerly Jerry Weinstein, but he became Jerry Winston and became later uh the principal owner of Malvern Distributors, which was a, a really up into the 80s, I guess. Yeah. A, a yeah, large yeah. independent distributor. Yes, it was. So we owned those masters, and um, so that started our label compilations. And then after that, depending on... Um, the rights that we were able to get. Probably one of the most interesting was Celeste Records, which was a very small label out of Brooklyn, and it was owned by David Levitt and his wife. And I remember I was living in Brooklyn at the time in Fort Greene, and I called probably 20 different David Levitts in Brooklyn, and I found the right one, and I met with them one afternoon, and they had tapes of Lillian Leach and the Mellows, uh, a cappella rehearsals, which were really priceless. And again, um, the songs that they had, I guess they had two releases, I'm Yours and My Darling, right. on Celeste, we converted 
most of them to CDs later. Uh, initially, we were very, very opposed to CDs. We didn't understand CDs. Yeah. Uh, we, I never was that. F- I loved. I'm a 45 guy. <laughs> yeah. I never. Lo- I was. I. I never was that fond of albums. I think what were the first albums I bought? Uh, Elvis Presley, Elvis, Gene Vincent, the first Gene Vincent album. At the same time, Harry Belafonte, Calypso. <laughs> But anyway, um, it, and they were bulky and heavy and difficult to deal with. Plus, at the beginning, we didn't have any money, and we pressed a lot of those on um, recycled vinyl, um, and the sound wasn't that good. So- yeah, my contribution to the LPs was liner notes on the back which weren't right. really adequately researched in terms of what uh, you, what people like Colin Escott were uh, were doing. There was a delay in the first of our Golden Group series in Onyx because I was living in the city then. I was living in Chelsea, and I had. Uh, an introduction from the recorded sound archives at Lincoln Center um, to Marty Ostrow, who was editor of Cashbox magazine. So they were up on 57th Street uh, between 6th and 7th Avenue. I think it was 119 West 57th Street. So I would go up there in the afternoon, and in the mailroom, they had all the volumes of Cashbox, bound volumes from the beginning in the oh. 40s. And I had Tumblr notebooks, and I laboriously started with, I think, 1945. And any time an R&B group was mentioned... I would write it down with the dates for each issue. Wow. So that was quite a task, and the people in the mailroom weren't happy to see me because they were <laughs> this old Italian guy and two women, and they would sit there gossiping, and I would just tell them to go on with their work, but I guess that they were embarrassed to. So whenever I showed up there, they were frowning and all of that. But I would sit, and I would just write in longhand, uh, was starting with 45, and eventually I got up to, I think I stopped maybe in 1961 or 62. So at that time, it was t- I could write Onyx, and I think in a lot of my um, original liner notes, I did not want to contact the members of a group at the time. Why not? Uh, because uh, of just a little experience where they would ask for royalties or they would ask for money and this kind of thing. And um, so consequently, I relied much more on it was released in September 1957, the same week as, and then I would list three or four other records right, that right. were released at the same time. Good information. And, and at the time, you know, if you hadn't have done that research, where would you find that information? 
Couldn't Google it up. No, not, not and not only that. Besides the bound volumes of Cashbox, from there, uh, they were only available in one more place, and that was the recorded sound archives at the Library of Congress. But in both of them, when I went there to use it, because they hadn't been converted to microfilm then, um, somebody, some Elvis person, had cut out like some of the early Elvis ads mm. on Sun, and they were obviously used a razor. And I would like to use a razor to that person because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are, you know, priceless and they yeah. couldn't be replaced, really, too. Yeah. Um, so um, Billboard was more accessible. It was on microfilm, and you could read that at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cashbox was better for R&B in those years. They had this ramblings column. And it was in New York, Chicago, sometimes New Orleans, L.A., and it would mention a lot of records that were never reviewed. Um, A lot of odd uh, small-label group records um, weren't reviewed. Uh, As my friend Leo Rogers said, you know, why would you send it in? If they gave it a bad review, it could kill the record. I see. So uh, there would be really no way of documenting some of these records. Yeah. Cashbox is just more fun than Billboard by a mile. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you were, you were, uh, getting your research by handwriting, uh, information on records that were released by date in Cashbox. And that's where you got your information for the liner notes. Yeah. And I was doing also interviews as at the time. I mean, for example, um, we, uh, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time in California, and I persuaded the widow of Larry Mead, who had died maybe 10 years before, of Vita Records, um, and I guess he owned part of Mambo. Um, and I went down to this pressing plant in Gardena, Ralph's that was famous, I think, that they did the uh, Dick Dale and the Deltones initial stuff a few years later. But they were ready to throw them out. They had the parts and they had tapes from the Vita sessions. So we were able to get that. And that also, that was one of our better blues CDs later, uh, Willie Egan's. Right, yeah, the Willie Egan's is terrific, yeah. Yeah, I I, think... I wanted to say that the LPs and then the CDs, uh, the CDs had, uh, there were were more of the CDs. No, there were more of the LPs, that's right. But I think there was stuff on CD that didn't come out on LP. I could have that backwards. They sound terrific. Almost all of them sound absolutely terrific. Well, that's due to uh, Walter Devaney. Little Walter. In yeah, Boston. I know Little Walter. I used to live in Boston. I know Walter. Sure. Uh, it, uh, he was on WBCN, and then he. That was he, before my time, but yeah, right, he, was, he right. definitely was. Early 70s, he had a very right. popular show on there. He had originally started uh, working for Skippy White. Who you probably yeah, know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. everybody knows. Uh, what's his right. name? Fred LeBanc in Boston, who is a pioneer R and B DJ, 
and Walter uh, had his own home studio in uh, Medford at the time, and uh, he was able to spend countless hours going through these tapes and editing them. And a lot of t Eddie and I would uh, borrow, in many cases, copies of the rare vinyl. I think Victor Perlin, Val Shively, others would lend us uh, records that we didn't have. Uh, we never were photo collectors, so we were able, from Arthur Berlowitz was one, and others who uh, would lend us copies of uh, artist photographs. Um, but when the CDs came along, we had access to tapes that we never had before. Uh, for example, I th we did it. I think we did a Best of Windley LP, didn't we? When it came time for the CDs, um, Eddie had the idea, we had the idea of putting out separate LP uh, CDs for Rumble and Paragons Meet the Jesters, which were, I'll use the word, iconic New York City early vocal group albums. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Everybody I knew <laughs> in 1959, 1960 had bought those two albums with the classic covers of the, you know, hoodie kind of guy and girl and all of this. Right. So we had um, kind of scratchy copies of the 45s when we made the LP. And then what happened is that, let's see, um, Walter had access, I believe it was after Mr. Morris Levy died. Went, what year did he die? I don't know. 86. Okay, so sure. Okay, all those tapes somehow ended up at Rhino Records in LA. Yeah, and, Rhino Rhino bought the uh, the roulette catalog. Right. And we were friends with Rhino um and Walter and Bob Hyde, the late Bob Hyde, uh were able to have access and to these tapes. So Winley was distributed at one time by Jubilee, which was taken, Cosnet which was taken over um, eventually by Levy and Roulette. So uh, many of the original Paragons and Jesters tapes were in that group. And so we were able to, to put them out on CD and they sounded, you know, I, I, I know purists like Louis Silvani and a lot of others said, no, you got to play it with a sure cartridge from 57 <laughs> on a turntable. And, <laughs> and he's probably right. Uh, it probably will sound better. But for somebody like me, who at this point is just happy to pop the CD in, it sounds great. Um, and we, we got... <laughs> some complaints about the qualities of our production because, again, um, we didn't have the money. It was just the two of us, really, and Walter, uh, and the scope of somebody like my friend Richard Weitzer at uh, Bear Family, right. or we weren't 
merchandisers like Jerry Green at Collectibles so that even though Eddie and I knew um, what was called soul harmony or the beginnings of that, we did not venture into that. And then again, Jerry was very, very successful with things like the new birth and main ingredient. Sometime in the 90s, um, we went to Chicago, Eddie and I, and I had been communicating with John Burton. Does that name strike a bell? He was called yes. Lawyer Burton. Right. He was a very professional black guy who had been the attorney for chess for many years and who had actually acquired the Parrot and Blue Lake labels from Al Benson, the mm. famous Chicago black DJ from the 40s right. and 50s. Right. And later Burton went and he was general counsel for Stax. But anyway, I had been speaking with him over the years because he was tantalizing me with stories of a special warehouse that Chess had in Chicago okay. where all the old parrot <laughs> masters and tapes had been stored. But he had he died and his son, a very nice guy named Jeffrey Burton, and wife lived in a nice middle class, upper middle class suburb, Glencoe. And Eddie and I went to the house and in his cubbyhole storage space we were able to get what remained of the Parrot and Blue Lake tapes. The best wow. were the blues that we reissued um, early in two yeah, CDs. I, I've, got, I've got the CDs. They are really terrific. Right. And there were some groups, but not a whole lot. Well, anyway, there was an unreleased uh, series of groups on uh, sides by a group called the Earls. Mm -hmm. So when we put our, I think it was our second Parrot and Blue Lake compilation out in the early 90s, mid-90s, I guess it was, we included these sides by the Earls. Well, somehow Mr. High Weiss of Old Town Records oh, yes. found Miriam, out. Miriam's friend. <laughs> yes, my friend. Found out, yes, a John Broven, my good friend John Broven's friend, too. <laughs> well, anyway, High Weiss found out that we were releasing something by the Earls. Now, he had no idea what the titles of the songs were, but he extrapolated very in his crazy mood that we were bootlegging his earls. Messing somehow. with his masters. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly said, Miriam. So one Saturday morning, uh, I guess it was fr Thursday or Friday of the week before, on our, um, Eddie had an ans old-fashioned answering machine then. Uh, so in the voicemail, there were probably 10 different threats from High Weiss. Uh -oh. I'm coming, I'm going to burn you down, or, oh, you know, whatever it was. Does so, this sound familiar, Miriam? So <laughs> kind of. On Saturday, um, I usually was sitting on the porch with my wife, okay, and I usually would come down to the store uh, early afternoon, but for one reason I didn't, and I think Eddie was out of town. Well, High came over with three or four of his big guy friends, and they were ready to do us in. 
And, of course, the door uh, was uh, locked, uh, so he came to the record store across the street. Where's Grice? Where's Folletti? Oh, no. You know, Folletti <laughs> lives in a Hackensack. Do you know where he lives? <laughs> oh, gee. Um, the upshot of that is that we got a restraining order against him. And he had to come to Hackensack Municipal Court. Eddie didn't drop the charges, but he was able to, I guess we were able to work out something. And he sent his very attractive young uh, female lawyer, and her name was Joyce Vastola. And does that Vastola name (laughs) ring any bells with either of you? Yes. Well, okay, Tommy Vastola. Yes. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it was a, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking uh, about. Yeah, well, okay, he was the co-writer of one of the Valentine songs, I think, yeah. Mary Maybell. Okay, so sure. He goes back sure he was. in the uh, Morris Levy <laughs> pantheon. Right. <laughs> so it hadn't changed much over the years. So eventually, High and I sort of became friends. Uh, Eddie, I don't think, ever spoke to him again. Eddie is more of an unforgiving guy than I am. But, uh, you know, we were actually in danger. He was a colorful character, but you don't, when you're hardly making a lot, when you're not making a lot of money, yeah. you, you don't need that kind of thing. No, no, you don't. And that, that was shades of, and part of the record business got worse. I mean, as you know, then with um what was it that sort of was the demise of tower records kind of went bankrupt they were one of the big customers of ours um uh, oh you mean with with uh, with the downfall of the of of relic yeah i mean that also the um what Distribution North America. Yeah, what? Well, they were all right, but then the pigs at at then at, at Alliance. Yeah. They folded three or four of their major distributors, and we yeah. got all our inventory back. And then how uh, Harry Fox agency wanted us to pay royalties on inventory that we had shipped and was sent back to us. <laughs> Don, we had to buy our inventory back. Yeah, exactly. That they had never paid for. Yeah, well, in fact, it was sold at auction. Some of That's it went right. to Scorpio, yeah. okay? Yeah. And we bid, and we bid too low for it. Yeah. But, I mean, those are things, you know, um, that's you could just get into stories like that. We had a lot of trouble with... Uh, this guy, Murray Sporn, who um, owned some of the publishing on the Harold Ember Masters, and he and Al Silver uh, had a scam going, and we had to testify in federal court, actually, Ouch. or it was a, or New York State court, in um, the city down at 100 Center Street, and it's, uh, it, you know, things like that over the years. Um, well, it's disappointing because you guys brought the music back out and then others saw that there was some profit to be made and, and then put the kibosh on you. You know, the thing is, is that I don't want to sound too jaundice about no, it, Miriam, because at the time, it, it's just that, um, you know, the the other thing, too, is, okay, when we were doing our LPs, um 
for example, one of our good customers was Downstairs Records that had moved into where Louie was and where times were before on 6th right. Avenue and 42nd Street in the Subway Arcade. Well, okay, Nick and Roy were nice guys, easy to deal with, but I had to I was, come up every week to get $100 from them uh, on invoices. Uh, but when Mike Rascio, the big <laughs> bootlegger, started bootlegging everything on albums, they would pay him on the spot. And that's what happened over the years. Even with CDs, the bootleggers got paid. Why so? Know. Uh, because they demanded it. Yeah, okay? they, they didn't and, want to leave an invoice behind. No, and, and, and right, and, and we had a legitimate record company, yeah. okay, and we were billing on 30- or 60-day basis and all. The distributors were very slow in paying, and uh, yet, you know, uh, a classic example, there was a guy named Dave Rick in Brooklyn, and he had owned all the masters of Vito and the Salutations. Okay, they were a hot group. Uh, they appeared at that time in the 70s, 80s, 90s, I guess. And uh, we offered him $5,000 to do a CD, but uh, he turned us down. And my good friend Peter <laughs> in Hamburg uh, just went ahead and put one out and sold thousands of copies over the years. Meantime, uh, he thought Dave Rick, I was selling them and I got a season desist order from him. Yeah. <laughs> After Gossard, CBS had a terrific show on called The Doo-Wop Shop. Yep. And it was mostly hosted by Don K. Reed over the years. So every Sunday night, Don K. Reed would have an hour, usually in prime time, nine to 10, guests and he most of the time had um every white group that was trying to make a comeback and they would appear again and again so at the time you never heard you could hear the chimes and classics and the earls then it became Emil stuccio and the <laughs> lenny coco and the chimes larry chance and the and earls, the earls right. okay so eddie and i put out is maybe 1997 something like that we had a a uh a, a cd called whiter shade of doo-wop and it was a nice white group compilation uh, and I did the liner notes, <laughs> and I lost some. I lost some good acquaintances on that, because here's what was happening. What was happening is is that at that time there was a, a good revival audience in this area, and these clubs. Uh, and venues and parks and rec halls and, you know, PBAs, they were hiring just the white groups, okay? And the Jai Five, the Harp Tones, the Solitaires, they, uh, they wouldn't hire them, okay? Wow. And they were, in my mind, always much better groups, mm -hmm. but um, it was a sociological kind of thing obviously that the, obviously yeah the audiences preferred that and i made some kind of slam in the notes of the uh cops 
left formerly from Brooklyn who have moved out to Long Island now and much prefer this to the five keys and the moonglows. Oh, <laughs> and uh, one guy who was an avid collector and a store owner who was a former New York City policeman, he didn't appreciate that. But um, anyway, uh, and then, I mean, now... Willie Winfield has the last laugh. He's 89 years old and he still performs. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So basically with the growth of Napster and downloading, file sharing, what was it, 2002, 2003 mostly, well, Harry Fox, we from one day to the next we went out of business and Harry Fox didn't pursue us anymore, but I'll leave that to <laughs> uh, to posterity. Uh, and we basically closed the label. Uh, we had a diminished stock, and I continued, I guess Eddie and I continued doing a CD wholesale business kind of on the side for the next 12, 15 years. And then uh, that finally ended. And um, so at some point, um, my very good friend, George Lavatelli, who was a self-taught computer genius, taught me how to um, install uh, Picasa and audacity and to do sound clips and so i went on ebay and i've been um, piecemeal selling parts of my collection since then well the thing you should know don as well you do know this is that uh, you left such a, an incredible imprint on record collecting both as a collector and uh and as a researcher, as a as a friend to everybody, you were always so generous with all your information. You still are. And people ask us or asked us when Billy was still with us and myself now, you know, what label was influenced you the most? And we've always said Relic. Just because of the class that you had, you guys were fans and you were a, you know, fans, I mean I mean collectors and like uh uh, followers of the music, understanders of the music. Fans doesn't mean anything anything derogatory to me. But you love the music from the time that you were young and you made a career out of it and spread all of this information and great music out there. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. This is Mark. And Miriam. And you're listening to Crash in the Party, the best in doo-wop and R&B vocal group sounds from the smooth sounds of the 1940s. <laughs> To the wildest sounds from the early 60s. All right, that was the second part of our exclusive interview with Don Folletti from Relic Records, a big hero here, a big hero everywhere in the world of collectordom. He is the man behind Relic Records along with his partner, Eddie Grice. But we had the great interview with Don. Thank you so much, Don. And here we are with Crashing the Party with that man named Mark and that lady named Miriam. Let's go.
them are not allowed to be fooling with no other men. Stop pulling on my woman and telling me you're my best friend. Money never said that we was through I'm so jealous that I'm crazy I forget the things I do Stop pulling on my woman Telling me you're my best friend My woman's not allowed to be a fool And we no other men Once again, and I hope you understand Cause I've made your reservations Deep down in the promised land I put a love Telling me you're my best friend My woman's not allowed To be a fool with no other men Yes, I'm pulling on my woman Telling me you're my best friend
say, come on, cocksuckin' Sammy, get your motherfuckin' mammy. We going downtown to the cocksuckers' ball. Fuck, suck, and fight. Tell the beginning of the broad daylight. We don't need no goddamn taxi fares on a trim them holes in a rocket chair. Take off all the rags. We gonna play a little game called tag. Tomorrow night after run cocksuckers ball. Come on, you poor-ass singers and you big, big slingers. We going downtown to the cocksuckers ball. Fuck, suck, and fight. Tell them again now the broad daylight. We don't need no goddamn taxi fare. We gonna trim them holes in a rocking chair. Take off all their rags. We gonna play a little game called tag Tomorrow night after run cocksuckers born Cha-cha-cha-cha As the rotten Rotten Cock Cock Suckers Suckers Run cocksuckers born
Okay, counting backwards, we had on the Sherry label, The Great You by the initials as featured on the Terry Lee Show. Terry Lee, great Pittsburgh disc jockey, one of the founding fathers of that Pittsburgh DJ sound. R.I.P. Always in memory. Before that, Quit Pulling My Woman by the El Capriz. I beg your pardon. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's just telling his friend, hey, you know, Stop, uh, stop pouring in on my action there. And that's exactly the kind of advice that every gentleman should keep in mind. This is on the Ring-O Records label. Not Ringo, Ring-O. Yeah, and it's a right pressing, so you know that it's really good. If anybody wants to know about the right pressing, just give a call at 1-800-USELESS-INFORMATION. <laughs> I was going to say 1-800-USELESS-INFORMATION for record people. Uh, but uh, anyway, before that... Our revered Midnighters with that house on the hill, always wanting to head that direction. Okay, now before that, this is the record that's going to get me in trouble with uh, Jack and Helen. Yeah, that is uh, Cocksucker's Ball by the Clovers. Now, we have a couple versions over here that are pressed on 45. We got the Jet Records label. Jack Records company label uh, with the uh, with the great rubber stamping of all of the information. I like that one because it looks more like a what do you call those kind of letters that you can send to people to try to extract money? Like a form letter? Ransom. A ransom. Yeah, ah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The ransom letter. Okay, so and we've also got it on broadcast. There, both of them are fan club releases, of course. And, that uh, was recorded in the 50s, but not issued anywhere until sometime in the 70s or maybe late 60s. Yeah, they look. these guys both look like late 60s releases on it, but uh, but we're glad that they finally came out. There's good information there. We learned a lot from that record over the... It, it is a uh, teaching record, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, and then before that, we had No Money by the DeVilles on the Arawak record label. Uh, good advice there. Somewhere, I don't know. <laughs> All right, so let's take it over with Sir Mark, and then we'll be back with more from other people like myself. Boom, boom.
Oh, 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 oh,
that record rocks hard enough. No, 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 hardly. That's Dean and Gene and Oh Yeah on the Buckeye label out of Ohio. Ohio. Uh, Ohio. Yeah. And before that, we heard the love letters and the flip side of Walking the Streets Alone, which Don had mentioned, and Uwe Nelly, and that was on Acme from 1957. Yay. And let's call them the El Pollos. Must we? I, I, it's, it should be Los Pollos or something. I don't know. El Pollos just doesn't make any sense, but that's what it says on the label. That was High School Dance, and that was on Studio out of Cleveland from 1959. Jeez. The Trojans did I Want to Make Love to You on the RPM label with Ike Turner's band, and it was probably Ike that did that rock and solo in the middle of the record. And we started the set. With Come Dance With Me by The Vocal Tones, which is an unreleased track. And I want to thank Anthony for reminding me of that track. So that's why we played it. I'm glad you did. So am I. Yeah. What do you got for us? Well, let's do a little set here of uh, Relic 45 releases. I just want to say that it's been a thrill being able to interview Don and uh, to have him featured here on Crashing the Party. Major hero to us and the Relic Records label was the one that really started things off in a big way for many, many other companies to come. Uh, Don did such tremendous research and, and Eddie did as well, getting the groups together, getting their histories together for the first time in many, in many ways and also uh, presenting the Golden Groups series which went on into the almost 60 <laughs> almost 60 yeah and uh that's a whole bunch of lps and then they did compact disc versions of them they they issued thousands of songs that we cherish and love so much 
Thank you, Don and Eddie and Relic Records. And they really did a great job on those uh, Golden Era and Golden Group series. They, they are terrific. The annotations are great. The sound quality is terrific. Just great stuff. If you're not familiar with them, look on eBay or look on Discogs. Uh, just put in Golden Groups Relic or Golden Era Doo-Ops or something like, you know, like that and you'll find them. Or just look up the Relic Records label on your computer and you're going to get a lot of information about them. Mm, love them so much. We're going to play a set of Relic 45s on various colored vinyl. Let's go with the Relic sounds. Looking for a to Yeah, I do. Well, well, 
like a willow Tossing and turning on tears stay pillow Guess I'm gonna drown in my own tears Gonna go walking the railroad track Gonna let you choo-choo cross over my path So broken hearted Since you've been gone by the Velvet Angels. All right, we're going to count from the top and get back to the Velvet Angels in just a moment. We we started out with, I started out. What are the chances by the Cordells? We're playing a, a short selection of records on the Relic Records label. Uh, selections that they picked themselves, things that they had compiled themselves on albums and unique things. They were really big on acapella as well, fantastic acapella. And uh, we followed the Cordells up with The Foremost, I Love You. That's one of my favorite records on Relic. And it happens to be on the most sensational, clear, yellow, lemony wax that you'd ever want to shake a stick at. And I may have to tell you that the I started out was on green. So if any of you like the colored records, well, there you go. And then we had Never Never by the Jive Five. Uh, Jive Five, great friends with uh, Don Folletti and Eddie Grice. And Never Never, one of the greatest from the greatest, the Jive Five. We finished up with the Velvet Angels since you've been gone. A lot of legend going on with the Velvet Angels and Fortune Records and all of that good stuff. Uh, this was released on the Medieval Records label, which was a subsidiary of Relic. Uh, reproduced an arrangement with Angelo Pompeo. Hi, Angelo. And John Calhoun. It was a recording made in a Jersey City hotel room. Yeah, more records should be recorded in Jersey City <laughs> hotel rooms. <laughs> thank you, Don, and thank you, Relic Records. Go ahead, Sir Mark. What do we got going now? Well, a few shows back, you played a record by a group called the Redwoods, and we were looking for information about the group, and I'm glad to say I found some. You did? Yes. It turns out that the Redwoods are actually Jeff Barry. What? Yes. All Jeff Barry singing all the parts, and they did, I think it was three records for Epic and this is the last one. This is Please, Mr. Scientist. All right, let's hear it. Ten, nine, eight, seven. So cry, astronaut, a hoop, shoogie, Don't cry, astronaut, a hoop, shoogie, Please, Mr. Scientist.
button that makes this thing land.
from 1957 and my Juanita except on my copy it says me Juanita it says M-I M-I Juanita oh that's nice yeah it's such a great record it's one of my favorite records of all time love that record before that we heard the Deltaires of Lullaby of the Bells fame and a song called I Might Like It it's a very very odd piece of uh, wax there going on and that was on the Ivy label and they were from Queens New York before that, the coins and cheating baby, and they did that was on G, and they did one other record for G, and that was the end of the coins. And we started the set with the Redwoods, which was actually Jeff Barry in disguise, and please, Mr. Scientist. And we played a record a few weeks ago about a reluctant uh, astronaut who doesn't want to go into space, and this guy doesn't want to go into space either. He's begging for the scientists to. Uh, let him stay home. But a chicken astronaut. Chicken astronaut. Today. Yeah. So what do you got for us? Well, I've got something over there on the exclusive Addict record label. Addict? No, Addict. A D D I G. Addict. Ah. Let's hear it.
Jones on Rayburn, Insane. That was the first Motown record, uh, pre-Motown record, but it's considered the first one out the gate. And boy, what a fantastic record that is. It's the flip side of I Can't Concentrate. All right, so be on the lookout for that record. If you find some multiple copies, we'll take them all off your hands, okay? Yeah, and before that, we had uh, We're in Love by the Spy Dells on Add It don't know what else they were at but they were at it with that record we're in love it was fantastic and of course from the most fantastic vj records label yes number vj 107 we had the spaniels with you don't move me on red wax and that's an original copy so if it sounded a little bit scratchy just Consider it, it no extra <laughs> charge, all right? And that was the B-side of Goodnight, Sweetheart, Goodnight, which everybody knows. Yes, Hopefully and I think it's time to say goodnight to you. Okay, well, that's another Fabo episode of Crashing the Party in the Bag, and don't forget, whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. Well, whatever you're doing, keep on doing it, cause the show is good to me. Whatever you're doing, keep on doing it, cause the show is good to me. You're driving me crazy, but I'm happy as a man can be. I don't care how you do it, long as you do it, please don't ever stop. I don't care how you do it, long as you do it, please don't ever stop. Well, if you ever stop doing it, I know I'm gonna blow my top. They say that I'm a fool to love you like I do. They say you're going to break my little heart in two. They say you'll kill me dead. They say you'll make me cry. But I don't know a better way for me to die. So whatever you do it, keep on doing it, cause the show is good to me. You're driving me crazy, but I'm happy as a man can be. You got a magic touch, you make me feel so strange, but I like it so much. Baby, please don't shame. Whatever you do, keep on doing it, cause the show is good to me. I may be crazy, but I'm happy as a man can be. Whatever you're doing, keep on doing it, cause the show is good to me. 
driving me crazy, but I'm happy as a man can be. Sometimes you treat me wrong, sometimes you mean to me. But when we get along, you sweet as you can be. You know just what to do, you know just how to do it. You got the keys to heaven, so lead me on through it. Whatever you doing, keep on doing it, cause it sure is good to me. You are killing me, darling, but I'm happy as a man can be.